0: So welcome to a new room uh, for this last course in the in the three course. Um, well, what do I call that? I've, I can't use the word course now, can I? Uh, the, uh, the kind of the the three courses that build into one theme, which goes through the entire Bible, following particularly the covenantal structure of the Bible, and the reason that I choose the covenantal structure of the Bible is because of my understanding of covenants my understanding of covenants are simply that they are an amplification of in God's case of divine speech about something important now because that's the case God is in a sense shouting at us saying believe this believe what I'm I'm making an oath about here because they're big and important themes that means those themes carry us through to the very uh, culmination of the plan of god and nothing that we may think the bible teaches if it clashes with those themes can be a correct understanding i hope that you uh, you have caught that those of you who have been with me so far you cannot have something when God is saying, look, listen to this, listen to this. This is important. And you get what he's saying, and then you've got this other teaching that, that flattens out that and, and reroutes that important covenant. Then whatever it is that causes that blip or causes that hurdle must be wrong. And you need to go back to the drawing board, or I need to go back to the drawing board, and change it so that it actually does fit the picture that the covenants have painted and i 'll open up with a little reminder about what that picture is in just a second, but we need <laughs> to pray, and um, glad that you 're all here and um, this is the this is the course that that I really um, it gets me because um, this is where I see the genius of Scripture coming together, and um, I really do believe, even though I don't, I certainly don't have all of the answers. I really do believe that you can just take the Bible as it says. Now, taking the Bible for what it says doesn't mean that you automatically have the right interpretation. And I'll go into that in a second. Um, we know that communication can be understood in a certain way. The same phrase, the same sentence can be understood in maybe two or three different ways, depending on what's being said. Uh, but there are always parameters. You can always get back to the meaning by looking at what was actually said, do you see? So let's uh, let's start with a word of prayer and then we'll... Uh, get back into it here Father thank you for your providence and thank you for your grace and your kindness in bringing us together again here um, a lot's happened to me in my life during the, la- the last few months and um, i sure it's not been uneventful in the lives of those here you're the same God that we left in a sense, the story of last time, and uh, you continue forever. It's your truth that we want to teach and and hold on to, and we don't want error to interrupt or, or corrupt what we're saying or what we're hearing. And so I do pray, Father, that you would help me to just speak the truth, and if there is error, I pray that your spirit would uh, show that up. I ask, Lord, for help and uh, for assistance for myself and for all of us here to understand your word better and how these two testaments come together. Bless this course. Bless those that are taking it, those that may be on their way. We thank you for this incredible book. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, um, I can't. Although I can't think of an example, which I should have, I should have thought of one before I came. But you know, sometimes my wife says to me something. Okay, can I do this? Can I do A? And I take it to mean do this. And she says, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm doing what you told me to do. And she said, I didn't tell you to do that. I told you to do this. <laughs> oh, I see. That's right. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes uh, a short communication particularly uh, can be uh, an opportunity for us to to intrude a meaning into it or to put more detail into it than needs to be there, fill it out more than needs to be there. And then we we kind of sometimes gild the lily too much and go off into a misunderstanding because of that. And we can do that with the Bible. But what's important is uh, with what the Bible says is that you've got to make sure that you're within at least the parameters of what it's saying. You can't say that something is biblical and then point to a proof text that doesn't have anything to do with what you say that you're talking about, do you see, I'll give you an example here, so um, I have a Calvinistic strain in me, okay, it's okay, I don't don't need an inoculation or anything like that, (laughs) But and I'm not. No, yeah, it'll 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 we be a series. Sure. It'll be a series of five inoculations. But no, it won't be actually because of what I'm going to say next. But I, uh, for all of that, I do find some, some important truths in in Calvinism. I don't find the whole truth in Calvinism. Um, I think that Calvinism is a deductive theology. Just as much as arminianism is in a is a deductive theology. they have strength and weaknesses in the different areas, and uh, most Calvinists have never met have never sorry read Arminius, and if they'd read Arminius half the time they would think they were reading calvin um, It really is he's not that kind of a person so uh john three sixteen okay, come on, you can do it. All right, let's get rid of that one. So John 3.16, For God so loved the world, cosmos, uh, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The emphasis in the Greek is on the preposition so. Okay? So loved the world. So the emphasis is on God's love and the... Uh, the uh, Uh, Overwhelming intensity of that love. Okay, we understand that bit. What about the word world? This is the trouble sometimes in this, uh, in this little verse. Does world mean as many Calvinists, not all Calvinists, but as many Calvinists believe, does this mean the elect? Only those people for whom Christ died? Okay? Or does the world mean, as it does in certainly many contexts that are unambiguous, and as it does in every theological dictionary known to man, uh, does it mean like the, uh, the unsaved or sinful world system? or oh, world worldly way of thinking yes it can mean the planet but um, usually doesn't um, well in this you, you'd be surprised to know that that some Calvinists in their zeal to um, to uh, preach the third point which is the most contentious point limited atonement believe that this is a strong proof text for limited atonement. I once saw R.C. Sproul trying to, to uh, insist on this. Uh, but you see, he, what he didn't realize is that what he was doing is that he was bringing his own deductions into his understanding of this definition of this word. He'd already, in other, other words, got his theology before he went to the verse for a, a proof of the theology. Do you see? What I'm talking about when I'm talking about the parameters of understanding is that we cannot do that. That is about face. That is the wrong way to do theology. doesn't matter who's doing it. And uh, in this context, without doubt, world means, and it, it goes together with whosoever, and it means the unsaved world. As it does uniformly, actually, in uh, John's... Um, Writings when he's talking about salvation. And that's easy from 1 John chapter 2. You can see that quite clearly. Love not the world nor the things that are in the world. Yes? That cannot be the elect, can it? Alright? Also notice what happens when you stray outside of the parameters of meaning. Or what I call parameters of meaning. And that is that this, if you look at this, let, let's, uh, let's, let me repeat the text and see what you make of it. God so loved the elect that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever of the elect should believe, okay, should not perish but have an everlasting life. What you've done to the verse is you've made it a mere truism. You've made it what's called a tautology. Okay, it's, also, it's just like uh, saying the same thing in two different ways. You're not saying anything different. Okay, God so loved the elect that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever the elect believe should not perish. Well, of course they won't. Of course they won't perish, because He's given the Son's been given for them. Do you see? It 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 doesn't make really. It doesn't have any punch to it. Do you see? But in the context of John's theology and what uh, is being spoken of here, uh, the whosoevers in uh, verse uh, 17 or verse 15, the the world in verse 17, and then what he goes on to say in verses 19 through 21 of John 3 is that uh, um, light has come into the world, But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Do you see? Well, men is just another synonym for this. It's in the same kind of train of thought, do you see? Men generally, the world generally, this is the unsaved train of thought so we're not within the parameters of the meaning of that verse you can't go to the verse and come away with limited atonement from just reading the verse you have to bring limited atonement to the verse do you see that and at the same time now there may be other verses that you can go to that teach limited atonement although i don't know any but i know the ones that they go to but my point here is not to debate that particular doctrine. My point is that please understand that in reading the Scriptures and in trying to understand what God's saying, sometimes we we don't quite get it exactly right. But we are within the parameters of what must be right if we are really paying attention to the words And we're basing our beliefs on what God is actually saying rather than bringing our beliefs to what God's saying and then doing this. Mm -hmm. Do you see? Does that make sense? Oh, look at that. She gave me a micro (laughs) eraser. All right, so. (laughs) So, having said that then, Let me paint uh, the picture quickly from the last two courses. And sorry if this is uh, vain repetition to some of you. But I think it is important that we get the right trajectory. So remember that things start off in Genesis chapter 1 with what I've called the creation project. Now I'm calling it a, a project because things go skew with in chapter 3 but there's an awful lot of the Bible still left. Does this mean that the project comes to a sorry end just after it's had this wonderful start? Or are we within, even now, within the the working out of that same project? And I say that we are. We're within the same program of God that was started in Genesis 1.1. Now, systematic theology, which is not what we're doing here, systematic theology will will look at the questions about, okay, what does that mean, therefore, for God's, uh, for our faith in God as far as his foreknowledge is concerned, as far as his sovereignty is concerned, and as far as us living in a fallen world? Can we say, or ought we to say, that it is God's will that we live in a fallen world? Yes and no. <laughs> how is it yes? Well, because if he really didn't want it, he could have prevented it. Okay? Um, so, it's got to be yes. No, in the sense, that God hates sin. So, God, now that opens up another question for us about God's permission of sin and what do we, how do we define that permission? Do you see? That's systematic theology and we're not going to do that here. Um, what we're doing here is biblical theology where we're just seeing what the Bible is saying and we're running that program through and seeing where it comes out. We're trying to track it. But I think it really does help us to see that this is a project and we're within that project. The project comes to its historical uh, consummation when Christ delivers up this earth once he's beautified it and once he's defeated the devil um, to God at the end of the millennium if I can talk in those broad terms at the end of the kingdom and then we have a new heavens and a new earth do you see? what this means is that um, this planet is not as I put it just a ramshackle vehicle that is just uh, hiccuping hiccupping its way to the finish line, as it were, to sputter and die once Jesus comes back, and then we go into new heavens and new earth okay just it 's just there to to try and get us all over the line, rather it is the theater of god 's glory it is uh it 's a Calvinistic phrase, it's in Calvin's Institutes, but it's it really is a theater of God's glory. We don't really see the fullness of that glory as we will see it when King Jesus comes back and glorifies everything and, and puts casts his magic over everything. So <coughs> we're in this creation project. There are two big words that we were looking at. Can you remember what they were? Those of you really smart people that have been paying attention all this time. One of them begins with T. And one of them begins with E. Teleology and eschatology. There we are, okay. Teleology and eschatology. Teleology means goal or purpose, okay. Okay. Eschatology, the, the word eschatos, it means last things, okay? So uh, it really deals with the culmination of things, okay? In this case, the, the uh, creation project itself. Now, these two things belong together. Okay, They must never be separated. They often are separated in different theologies and they shouldn't be. And that's why the biblical covenants are so important because they keep these two things uh, together and stop them parting. Teleology, we are heading towards a purpose. That's why this is a project. Creation was a project that was started at Genesis 1 and uh, that project does meet its fulfillment in Christ's reign, and then eschatology is the movement from the starting line to the finish line. Now, why is that important? If we just look at eschatology like a lot of dispensationalists and premillennialists do, then eschatology just is something that we look at at the end. It's the last things, and we just tack it on to the end of our systematic theologies, and we deal with it then. And sometimes... You know, we can get flashy little books with, with uh, dragons on them and the solar eclipses on them and sell them by the millions because we're just fixated about the end times, you know? And who's the little toe on the beast and all of that? Um, and who cares? So, that's not what we want to do and we don't want to look at the Bible that way. We want to look at the Bible as something that is tending to the that. Last thing, that means that we are within that eschatological push in history. Now when we look at the Bible that way, I hope you can see that we're, that we're being carried along on that wave. Do you see? And the Bible is an eschatological book. And, uh, you know, that, that does mean, it does mean the sorry end of, of many Uh, people who have built whole ministries just on the end times. But uh, it's a better way of looking at things because it takes you uh, through the whole Bible, gives you that that, uh, whole counsel of God rather than kind of just focusing on one thing, fixating on that one thing, which is always a dangerous thing to do. So this is basically what's going on. How is this accomplished? It's accomplished by really by one thing one thing um and that is language god's language obviously so it's really important that we ask the question about god as a communicator because language is for communicating and um years ago When I had a bit of time on my hand, um, I'd lost my job. And I just, I don't know, it was an interesting, <laughs> difficult but an interesting phase of my life. Um, my attention was drawn to several questions by the books I'd been reading. Many of those books you would find extremely Boring and and so on, and they were they. Some of the authors were not even orthodox authors. Um, You know, Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics. I was reading, and I was reading, um, you know, a a lot of uh, our millennialist works. I I still read a lot of our millennialist works, and I was reading systematic theologians, and I was trying to, oh, and apologists. And I was trying to understand the idea of worldview, the, the worldview that the Bible presents. You say, well, what's so great about that? Well, the worldview is only useful if it's coherent and if it can be explicated to people. Um, Apologetics, do you know what apologetics is? A defense of the Christian faith to unbelievers? and Well, to believers too. Apologetics is only useful if it can, ble- can be uh, expounded from the scriptures themselves. If, if you can't go to the scriptures and say, this is what the Bible says, then I hope you can see that you have disconnected your defense of the Christian faith from the book that the Christian faith comes from. Some apologists actually do do that quite well. But I was concerned with, with not doing that because I didn't believe that that was God-honoring. So, that means that this question of, of God's language and how he communicates is very important. So, the, the basic question was asking, I was asking was, what kind of a communicator is God? Well, faith and wanting to glorify God and, and so on, uh, wants to give an unthinking answer to that because that's what God expects, which is God's a really good communicator because he's God. And that's as much as we have to think about it. The problem is that actually that doesn't answer any question for us. That's just a pious you know glory 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 holy 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 god with not even thinking about what you're saying um, we don't want to we don't want to approach scripture the word of god that way we don't need to be afraid of asking questions about god we don't need to be afraid about Just saying, well, hold on a minute. I know that that's the pious answer, but let's think about this for a second, okay? Is that also the dumb answer or is it the wise answer? And what do I mean by that? Because if I don't know what I mean, then it obviously is a dumb answer. So, granting that God is a good communicator... Let's have a look at how the way God communicates in the Bible. So that's what I started to do. I started to read the Bible and read what God said. How, how's God talking to Adam? How's God talking to Noah? How's God talking to Abraham? How's God talking to Joshua or to David or to um, you know one of the prophets? How's Jesus talk to his disciples? How does Paul talk in his letters? Now, some of these things I understand. They can be difficult. and We're going to go into some of this stuff in this course. But a lot of it is actually really quite straightforward. God, particularly God, actually is very clear about what he says. When he goes and tells the prophet to do something, it's very clear what he's supposed to do. He says, Elijah, go to the brook Cherith. Okay, Stay there and the ravens will feed you. Well, Elijah knows where the brook Cherith is, so he knows what he's got to do. When he has to go to Zarephath, then that's where he knows he's got to go, even if it's ten miles away from where Jezebel actually comes from. That's where he has to go. He's quite clear on that. When it's time for him to go and see Ahab, up, go and see Ahab. Present yourself to him, do you see? Uh, Elijah doesn't have to second-guess what God means, he might want a few more details, but he doesn't get them. But he does know what he's supposed to do. And when Jesus says, hey, let's go over to the other side, and uh, the water starts coming into the boat and everybody starts panicking, and they wake Jesus up and say, do you not care for us? Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and he rebukes the disciples. Why? Because they don't have any faith Faith in what? Faith in His Word, which is saying, let's go to the other side. Do you see? It's quite clear about what His meaning was. It was just, getting there was a little more difficult than they expected. But, so the confusion often comes in because of the, the um, perplexities and, and uh, obstacles of life. But, uh, but, God is glorified when we believe Him. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that without faith it's impossible to please Him. So this throws up something else as far as the communication of God is concerned. If God cannot be pleased unless I believe Him, how do I know what I'm believing is what I ought to be believing? Am I having faith in the wrong thing because I've got the wrong understanding of the words? Do you see? So do you see an awful lot hinges on God as a communicator? And the thing is, here's where the pious God, of course he's a good communicator, this is where that must go on hold. And we must be a bit braver and say, where does the fault lie in communication between two people? Well, you have person A, who's the speaker, okay? And he's speaking to person B, who is the listener. So let's look at some permutations here. Right, person B, that could be me, and it could mean that I'm not hearing Correctly, I'm not paying att- attention, okay? In my case, that's rather frequent. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that could be, remember, you find this in the scriptures. You find that, uh, that uh, Jesus says, uh, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then they, what do they do? They say, well, oh, it's because we um, didn't bring any bread. And, you know, he gets frustrated with them, doesn't he? What what do you mean? I've just fed 5,000 people in front of you. (laughs) You know, what do you mean, bread? Um, They weren't listening intelligently. Okay? And could go into a whole thing about that. So it could be that I misheard something. Sorry about my writing here. It could be that I misheard, or what else could it be? Could be an assumption, that's good. Maybe I didn't like what I heard. (laughs) That's right, I didn't like it. So I was prejudiced against it. Okay, what about over here? What's his responsibility? Plain English, yes. That's, that's what you keep getting taught taught in English class. Plain English. You know, is it Fowler's English, you know? He, he keeps telling you, you know, speak carefully. Say what you mean, you mean what you say. So is it clear? Okay? Is it ambiguous? Does it have a more than one meaning, okay, Well, I gave you the, uh, uh, the example of saying that my Jack is in the boot or the trunk of my car, okay, and so I ask you to go and get the Jack from my car and you think you're going to get the thing that you kind of lift the car up with, yes, change the tire, but I don't mean that, I mean my brother Jack. Who I've locked in the boot, or I mean, <laughs> or I mean a little one of those things that you tread on, you know, those annoying kids' toys. Okay, but for some ridiculous reason, I'm asking you to go and get it. The thing is that the word "jack" in that sentence has an equivocal meaning. In other words, it means different things to the speaker and the listener. And well, you know that thing, as yes? you know that that happens. Evolutionists do this all the time. Evolutionists say, and evolution, you know, uh, caused the growth of this, uh, kitten, or this lion from the, uh, the cub, and, and so on, yes? And, uh, and it evolved this, uh, these teeth, and it evolved whatever, this, however it evolves. And then they switch the word, and they say, and the whole thing evolved from, uh, you know, a um, primeval soup. Well, the word "evolved" is being used in two different ways. Okay, it's a bait and switch. Firstly, it's it's uh, actually a, a uh, adaptation is what's meant. Okay, adaptation. Well, that's fine. The other one is a, a completely transmutation of things, not adaptation, but a mutation of things. Okay, which involves insuperable barriers that are not there for adaptation, like finch beaks and so on. That's adaptation, but uh, if if you say the finch came from, I don't know, a dinosaur or something like that, then you're talking about transmutation, and that's a, a different use of the word. So, does God speak like that? Especially about important stuff. Okay? If he's ambiguous, he, I hope that this, you, you see that this starts to have a kind of a worrisome problem for faith. Okay? What about if God prevaricates? <laughs> that he doesn't actually say what he means, you know, you got to kind of, yeah, but, you know, and I keep saying this about my wife, okay, and it's probably not true, but it makes me feel that it, the problem's not me, okay, <laughs> that she's just not a very good communicator, okay, whether she is or she isn't, that's by the by, but we all have said, I'm not sure, I can't think of the words, and I'm not sure, I'm not communicating this very well, but this, that's kind of what I mean. Okay? And then you think, no, that's not what I meant, I mean this. Yes? Mm -hmm. We're we're prevaricating, and we're, we're not really saying what we mean clearly. Well, does God speak like that? Does he prevaricate? You see, in these two issues here, and other kinds of issues... The fault is not the listener's. The fault is the speaker's. If God doesn't speak clearly, it's not the listener's fault. If God makes covenant promises, for example, to David and about his throne and about the land, and he uses the words everlasting, you know, the olam, and um, he speaks of a thousand generations, like he does, and that uh, he'll never... Um, uh, you're as the, uh, the, the waters of Noah to me, you know, talking about his faithfulness to Israel. You're the apple of my eye, you know, though I will never go back on my word to you. And then, lo, lo and behold, you get to the end of Malachi, and you turn the page, and you're in, now that you're in the New Testament, and all of a sudden, Israel's the church, <laughs> and there's no Davidic throne anymore. That's that's in heaven, and Jerusalem is New Jerusalem, um, and Israel is actually the whole globe. National Israel is, gets saved if they get incorporated into the church, which is the true Israel now. If that's the case, I hope you can see there was very good reason for all of these people in the Old Testament to say, well, why didn't you say that then? Because obviously they had faith in the wrong thing. So is God a bad communicator? Okay. Uh, so that was something that we were. I, I was very concerned with, and this led led me to again looking at the way that God communicates, and lo and behold, what you discover, and what I've tried to bring out for you is very. God is a very clear communicator, um, particularly His covenants, and I've shown you there are there are two things that we can look at what i've called the motif of god's words words equating with god's actions does god say something and then do something unexpectedly he said he builds an expectation but then he does something different you say well no man that's not what you said is that what God does? No, He never does that. Actually, ever in the Bible, He always does what He says He's going to do. Sometimes, as in the case of Ahab and Ahab's uh, the the, um, the prophecy or the prediction of the death of Ahab the way that he's going to die, where he's going to die, that changes, but it changes because Ahab repented. Okay? As far as his death, actually he did die the way that God said he would die. The dogs did lick his blood from his chariot, but not at the place that he originally said, which was Naboth's vineyard. Okay? Because of the repentance. But... Where there's uh, a reaction to God's word, God will sometimes change his mind, at least from a a human point of view. But as far as these big um, actions like, um, shall we make grass? God says, let us make herb yielding seed and so on with its life in itself and blah, blah, blah. And he doesn't make a bunch of cattle. He actually makes what he says he's going to make. And when he says it's time to make cattle, then lo and behold, he makes cattle because he means what he says. His actions and his words go together. You can have faith in that. You can only have faith in God if that's true. So that's the first thing. The second thing has to do with the covenants, as I've said. And the covenants are... Reinforcements, reinforcements, or amplifications, because we have to have two big words, of divine speech about something important. Flood, that's pretty important stuff. That's the first covenant. I'm bringing the flood, and I'm going to destroy everybody. Better build a boat. Okay, that's big stuff. Um, Abraham, I'm going to make a, a people out of you, and I'm going to bless you, and through you all, uh, give you this land, and through you all, the world will be uh, blessed. That's big stuff. David, throne. Um Phineas priesthood, the new covenant, salvation to Israel, and then Jesus promising it also to um, all of his followers in um, the breaking of bread, and then Paul applying it to the church in first Corinthians eleven as we will see, salvation, big stuff, not small stuff, so does this go through to the big stuff which the covenants cover? Absolutely it does. Do you see? That's what's so, so important about this. What we're doing now is that we are, we've got to the end of the Old Testament and we had all of these different expectations. Let's put that word up there because it's really an important word. We had all of these expectations, and these expectations were built up by what God said. And he didn't just say it once. He repeated it again and again and again, didn't he, in the prophets. And it didn't change over hundreds of years. It was the same message about land, about the people of Israel, about safety, about blessing, about productivity of the land, about peace. Uh, about the nations finally being blessed, about this this great king of righteousness coming to rule on the earth and bringing in righteousness and justice on the earth, about the wolf lying down with the lamb and all of this stuff. Bringing up these expectations, temple ministrations and so on, God's words, but will they be fulfilled in the way that the words expect us Uh, oh, sorry, raise the expectation in us that they will be fulfilled. Yes, I believe they will. That's where we're at now as we enter the New Testament because supposedly for a lot of people there is a problem between um, harmonizing the two testaments. How can you possibly go from the Old Testament into the New Testament and not go and reinterpret the Old Testament from what the New Testament tells you. Surely, we are told, that the New Testament, particularly the cross of Christ, this is what many people will point to, the cross of Christ, that is the definitive um, mark for interpretation of Scripture. The Old Testament didn't have the cross of Christ. They were told that they knew it was coming, but now the cross, you see, and what has happened after the cross, that is the thing that determines the way we're going to interpret the whole Bible. So we've got to go back into the Old Testament. Now we know what it really means. And we've got to to look at these prophecies, look at these covenants differently and say, yeah, of course the expectations were there. It's just that uh, they didn't have the full light. One um, person said, "It's the Old Testament's rather like a plane on the runway, and it's going and it's building up speed uh, on the runway, but in the New Testament, it takes off." I hope you can see what, what, what that does to the uh, integrity of the Old Testament. It's a very poor way, and it's actually a deductive way of looking at Scripture. This is doing the same thing as uh, I showed you with the John 3.16. It's bringing a theology already prepackaged to the way that you're going to deal with the question of the two testaments. I'm not going to do that. Am I? Do I have assumptions? Yes. Do I have presuppositions? Of course I do. But... I've spent a long, long time really trying to track my presuppositions and trying to just ask the question, hold on a minute. How can that be in light of what's been said before? And am I just to to take this pious jump of faith and automatically uh, just think church, 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 Or do I need to just kind of hold off a little bit and and ask, is he really talking about what I think he's talking about? Because I've got an assumption, do you see, that's clouding my vision. I really do believe that that is what's happening. And I also predict that you're going to have some of your assumptions challenged in this course, you're going to think you know what Paul is talking about, but in light of the expectations that we've already seen in the Old Testament, I want you to rethink it, because he is a Jew, and he's just got the Old Testament, he doesn't have the New Testament, he's writing some of it, okay, that's his Bible, the question is, does he see a continuity or discontinuity between the two and then what kind of a continuity is it is it um, a typological continuity do you understand what I mean by typological in other words is the only continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament the fact that we can find Christ sometimes in the book of Leviticus maybe in the feast and in the Lamb and so on it, it, that's types, okay? Don't worry about all of the actual text there and what it's saying in its context. It's just the types. We bring the types out, and that's how we understand the Old Testament. Is that the way we're to do it? If that's the case, I hope that you can see that that would mean that it is a tacit admission that you cannot um, you cannot bring both Testaments together on the same level. Do you see? You have to transform your interpretation of this to make it match this. You can't treat them the same. And that's what Reformed Covenant theology does. Okay? It does not treat the Old Testament in the same way that it purports to treat the New Testament. And they would be all up in arms about me saying that, but it's, abs- it's true. <laughs> and I will show it, at least to some extent here. Um, so what we need to do is continue just to plead ignorance, to just try to imagine ourselves in the story, not trying to pull in what we think Paul said or John said or the book of Revelation says and say, ah, but doesn't that mean, okay, that's usually fatal to a right understanding. You've got to be patient. You've got to put off judgment until you get there. And maybe by the time you get there, your thoughts have been formed by the texts that you've read and by your concentration on them in a way that's kind of different than you expected. Having said that, let's turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke. Luke. That's my introduction. Those of you that are obedient and godly students... Well, I've been reading the Gospel of Luke already because that's what I set you as homework last time. Um, and you won't make excuses like, I forgot, okay? That's what my son says. Did you do your homework? I forgot. No. <laughs> Uh, now before you stay there in Luke I'm just going to read uh, one line from Matthew 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham that gets going of course on that Matthew is the earliest gospel unless you're uh, teaching in one of the major seminaries in um, in America in which case Mark is the earliest gospel but I still believe that Matthew was the earliest gospel. I believe that the 19th centuries of church history actually did get it right and the German higher critics didn't. Um, and I believe that, that, that Matthew wrote circa 40, 41 AD. he's early. And wh- how does he start off his gospel? Who' does he speak about? He speaks about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And he speaks about two important Old Testament personages. He talks about David and he talks about Abraham. Both extremely Jewish people, very key to uh, the self-understanding of Israel and Israelites. David the king, Abraham the one who was given the land and the seed promise and so on, yes? Yes. The descendant, they are, the Jews are the descendants of Abraham. So, kicking off the book of Matthew, you have this first foot forward that is very much on Jewish territory and we're right up, meet, uh, sorry, meeting the expectations that we had when we stepped out of the Old Testament. Just notice that. Is that the case? In Luke's gospel because I thought Luke was writing for Gentiles most people think that that's true let's have a look here and uh, it does mean that we have to read quite a, a bit okay and follow this through but this is what we're talking we're talking about expectations here as we look at the announcement passages in the Gospels which will be, of course, because of the birth narratives, and so we're talking about Luke and Matthew. And the, the, the question is really a simple question. These Jews, in this context, what would they have thought? Let's try and read and let's, let's see. So, let's try not to make any squeaks here. Verse 5. Luke 1, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, her name was Elizabeth and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, well that reminds us a little bit of, you know, some Old Testament figures, remember? Remember? And they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then, surprise, surprise, this is not the usual event. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Providence had brought him into that place where he is offering incense at the altar in the temple at that time. Remember, it says as the lot fell, and as uh, as uh, the last verse in Proverbs sixteen tells us, you know, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole determining thereof is of the Lord. And uh, this is providence here. When Zacharias saw him, he was troubled. Of course, he is and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, as angels tend to when they're introducing themselves, do not be afraid. Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Um, can't get into the wonder of this little announcement, but he'd been praying even of, though he was advanced in years and, and it was hope against hope, in a sense, he'd still been praying. And little did he know what kind of an answer he would get to his prayer. Um, God sometimes says no, and of course, that's a, that is an answer. But sometimes he says yes, and is, he says yes in a very surprising way. And that certainly happened here. <laughs> you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from uh, even from his mother's womb. This is no ordinary guy. He will turn many of the children of Israel, notice that, Israel to the Lord their God. Well, who's the angel talking to? A priest priest in the temple. Zechariah is thinking about Israel. He's thinking about Israel's past. He's thinking about the Hebrew Scriptures. He's not thinking about the church. He's thinking Israel, Israel, Israel. And the angel is, so far, focuses focuses his attention on that very thing, Israel. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Um, He was asked in John 1, John the Baptist was asked, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Okay. Jesus said, uh, if you will have it, Elijah has already come and is speaking about John the Baptist but remember that's because uh, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah but as far as the identity of the two people they were not the same so when he was asked if he was Elijah he said no that's important because at the end of the Old Testament the last three people that we find are the Lord and Elijah and Moses Okay, Those are the last three persons in the Old Testament. And remember the uh, prophecies there in chapters 3 and 4 of Malachi, which are mainly to do with the second coming. I just remind you of those. But he comes to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zachariah said to the angels how shall I know this for I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years and the angel answered and said to him I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of the Lord or presence of God sorry and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings alright do you think that Zechariah understood what Gabriel was telling him or did he have to spiritualize it did he have to make a type out of it in order to understand it no Gabriel's a very good communicator (laughs) but behold you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words Ah, you see that's the problem you see that's the problem it's always the problem good godly man but even good godly man sometimes will not believe what God says there's a warning right there, the beginning of Luke's gospel, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people wait for Zacharias and marveled and lingered so long in the temple and so on, and uh, comes out and, um, of course, John is, uh, is born a little later. Then you find the annunciation to Mary six months later. Verse 26... Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, now, now by the way, at this time, um, the house of David's in tatters, you know, we've gone 450 years, something like that, since the last prophet. And we've had all of that uh, intertestamental nonsense and all the apocalyptic language that people think is wonderful, you know, in 3rd Maccabees and Book of Enoch and so on. Um, and we've had all of that stuff going on in the intervening years. We had the Maccabean revolt. We had uh, the, uh, uh, the corrupting of the priesthood. Under the, um, can't think of the name. Anyway, uh, uh, the uh, Antiochus and those people, who I still can't think of. I'll, I'll, I'll get it in a minute. And uh, you, you just had the Romans coming in and dissipation of the rule of Israel. In fact, uh, there had been no king in Israel since. 586 BC and he wasn't a very good one that's why you know it happened Zechariah was a rotten king and there was a bunch of rotten ones before him so so what if this is the house of David 500 years well We are within the program, the plan of God. And so this detail is important. Having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. She probably did. That's a strange way of coming through the door and, you know, first thing out of your mouth. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and his name, uh, shall call his name Jesus. That's uh, uh, Yeshua, you know. If you uh, hung around a bunch of Hebrew Christians for a while, they're always calling him Yeshua, okay? Mm -hmm. It isn't Yeshua in Greek. It's uh, Jesus in Greek. And it's spelt in Greek, okay, Here. So it's Jesus, okay? That's not that's not how the Bible refers to him. They don't refer to the Bible itself doesn't refer to him as Yeshua. It refers to him as Jesus, okay? But that's not cool. So we can't go around calling him Jesus because you know a bunch of Mexicans will think that we're talking about them. (laughs) So, uh, but I hope you understand. I hope that you understand that just saying, just saying, um, um, just saying the Hebrew idea, Yeshua, you're just saying Joshua. It's just, that's what the word is, Joshua. There's a bunch of Joshuas around nowadays, aren't there? A bunch of Jesuses around nowadays. So, he's Jesus. Now, everyone knows who we're talking about. Okay. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There we are. Now, certainly, um, there's been a long time, there's been a huge wait. But the expectation, which has been stirred up by the Old Testament... And the word of God is still there. The throne does not mean the throne of God in heaven. That's not the throne of David. And if it was, then Gabriel needed to have a footnote here to explain what he was meaning. Otherwise, he was guilty of a disambiguation. He was guilty of not saying what he really meant. Because... He knew, if he'd have said the throne of David, any Jew in the first century would have thought, ah, that's the throne in Jerusalem, that's David's throne. If he didn't mean that throne, but he knew by his communication that that's what people would mean, he would be guilty as a communicator of misleading Mary. And we've all done that. You can use the truth to deceive somebody. Any car salesman here? (laughs) This is a classic, you know. Well, yeah, probably, you know, if it was working and actually wasn't going to fall apart, you know, as soon as I drive it off the lot, it might be. But you see, uh, people can use words in a, in a way to mislead people, can't they? Why? because they know oh, that's what they're thinking, and I know something else, but if I continue to to uh use these words, they will agree think thinking they're, they're agreeing to what I'm saying when I'm actually not i'm equivocating you see do you see that? Is that what God's like? Yes, he is, according to a bunch of uh, Reformed scholars. Although that's not the pious thing to say, and they would never say that. It actually ends up being what they do. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. Okay, so who's Jacob. Well, we know Jacob Israel in the Old Testament, it's not talking about the actual person Jacob, and most of the time it's not, after the book of Genesis, it's talking about Israel, the nation of Israel. It's just another name for Israel. So here we are at the beginning of the New Testament, and an angel from heaven is using the terminology Israel Jacob in the same way the Old Testament does. Again, just kind of log this away because maybe the Apostle Paul doesn't get the memo. And maybe he uses Jacob in a misleading way. Really meaning the church, which means that the New Testament would be using it in two different ways. And that would make it confusing. We'll come to that. Is Israel Israel in the New Testament like it is in the Old Testament? Or is it the church? He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, the house of Jacob in the Old Testament is on earth. Israel is on earth. It's been given a plot of land on earth. Genesis 15 described the limits of it. The prophets again and again and again talk about it. Remember Ezekiel 40 through 48. Looks as though we've uh, picked the night of the... uh, (laughs) Redwood Valley form, yeah Grand, yeah, Grand Prix or something. Anyway. Look at verses 31 through 33 and tell me what covenant is being dealt with. The Davidic. Straight away we're in covenantal territory here. Okay, first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Covenants. It's covenants that raise those expectations. How does Mary respond to this? Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. That's an amazing statement in that context. That really is an amazing context. Uh, Statement, excuse me. Uh, To us, we've read it so many times. Of course, he's the son of God. But the baby is go- who is going to be born is going to be the son of God. You don't read that in the Old Testament. This is a stunning announcement. It doesn't contradict anything in the Old Testament, but it's definitely a new bit of information. <laughs> now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren, For with God, nothing will be impossible. Nothing that's possible is impossible. Something that's impossible is impossible. Okay? It's not possible for God to sin. Do you see? It's not possible for God to make a square circle because they're not the same things. Do you see? So it's within the realms of, of, of potentiality what is possible. Then Mary said, Behold the maid servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. Okay. So she's just believing on the word, the same way Zachariah should have done. But I hope you can see there's no there's nothing here to even intimate that the Old Testament expectation is not going to be fulfilled. <coughs> Okay, look at uh, the Magnificat, what's called the Magnificat of Mary in verse 46 and following. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Saviour. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their heart. This is very Old Testament language, isn't it? He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. You could put this, Magnificat, into the book of Isaiah or into Ezekiel. I mean, it just fits there. It's the same kind of stuff. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. And what does she do? What does she recall? The Abrahamic covenant to Abraham and to his seed. Her expectation is based on that covenant. Do you see that? All right, so then John is born, verse 67. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... So this is a prophecy. The only question is, is this a clear and lucid prophecy or is it confusing? Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Who are his people? Well, this is parallelism, so yes. yeah. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Okay, hmm, interesting. We've got the words redeemed there. We've got the word salvation. And we've got the word David there. Can you see there are two covenants there? Can you see them? Well, tell me one of them. Davidic. Okay, why can't you find the the other one? The reason you can't find the other one is because you're not paying attention to what I said last time, which is that there is something that the covenants, Noahic, Abrahamic, priestly, Davidic, don't have within them to bring about their own fulfillment. What is the thing that's necessary in order to bring those covenants to fulfillment? Salvation. 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 Salvation Cleansing. Salvation. Salvation. Okay, so what's the other covenant that's in there? The new covenant is in there. Remember I told you that the covenants are mixed by the prophets. Jeremiah does it. Isaiah does it. They mix these covenants together because they all belong together. Mm -hmm. All right? Yeah, Yeah, they're not exclusive at all. So, she is realizing that this promise of a savior, cause she's, uh, and, and sorry, Zacharias, and this promise of, of, um uh, somebody who's going before the Lord, he knows Isaiah 40, he knows Malachi, chapter 3, so that's the, in that case, He knows this is not just Davidic language and Abrahamic language, but this is also New Covenant language because it's salvation. This would be the expectation that he would have. Anyone have any issues with that? As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, there you are, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies. Who's the we? Israel. Well, do the prophets talk about Israel being saved from their enemies? They certainly do. When? Ah. Eventually. Eventually. (laughs) Yes, that's that's a, a culmination, a last day's thing. But you see, that's the great expectation, isn't it? That God in salvation will come and save Israel and raise them up. This was his expectation. And from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. There's his expectation. To remember his holy covenant and the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. What's the, what's the covenant? The Abrahamic. And what's really interesting here is that word covenant there, which is diatheke in uh, the Greek New Testament, that's actually the centre, right at the centre of a structure that you wouldn't see. You don't see it in the English, but you see it in the Greek if you if you structured the Greek out. That uh, one line answers to uh, or mirrors uh, a line that's further on. And it's what's called a chiasm. Uh, that in Greek is not X. Okay, it's the Greek word, uh, Greek letter chi, you know, k. And so, when you have that, okay, please don't think it's Xmas. It's not, <laughs> okay. It's that's a Chi, okay. That's for Christ, okay. It's just short for Christmas. Um, but so you have. Oh well, I shouldn't have done that. So, when you have that, you have a kind of a structure, a sentence structure, uh, where you have the first sentence and then you have an answer to that later on, okay? Something like that. I mean, I'm not doing it very well here. But things answer in a chi structure. And right at the, the, the center of that chiasm, chi, so it's called a chiasm, okay? At the center of that chiasm is kind of the main word or main thought of that structure. And in that Chiasm there, that word covenant is right at the center. Okay, showing you that, that thematically that's the big focus here. Okay? John, you've got a strange look on your face over there. Okay. It's just a normal look. Alright, I'm sorry. Alright. Alright. Okay. So, notice that he says in verse 73, the oath why is the oath important because covenants have a bunch of window dressing on them and sometimes what what folks do is that they focus on that window dressing okay like the Noahic covenant and uh, you know that um, uh, if anyone slays somebody they will be slain by uh, the hand of man yes that's not in the oath that's kind of part of the announcement but the the covenant itself is the oath that's taken. So the focus is not all of the window dressing on a covenant. The focus is on the oath that's taken. That's what I mean by the, by the covenant. All right? And this is what he means by the covenant. Why? Because he tells you the oath. That's the covenant. What is the oath that was taken in Genesis 15 by God when he passed through the past? Had to do with the land and it had to do with the descendants. The hope of Israel. To grant us, that's Israel, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. And we see that over and over and over again in the prophets where you will lay down in safety. Okay? In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Isaiah 11. Uh, Jeremiah 23. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. He understands that he's a forerunner and because he understands something of Isaiah 40, he understands that the Lord is coming. He's expecting the Lord to come and set up this kingdom. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation. There's a new covenant to his people by the remission of their sins. That's what Israel has waited for. Through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us and so on. Now, all of that is, it, it, all of it is in line with the expectations of the Old Testament. We know as we, um, as we go into the Gospels, we know that things don't start to turn out in accordance or full accordance with this expectation, at least not when Jesus comes the first time. And this is where things can go a little bit wonky, because if we're not careful, we can start to think because these expectations were not fully met, they must have been met in another way. And then we can go off into hermeneutical cloudland and start to spiritualize the Bible to make it fit with this. But we don't need to do that. And I'm, I'm just throwing this in there. For you, because already the Old Testament has prophesied this very thing. It's prophesied the rejection of Messiah by Israel. Remember Daniel nine. After the uh, sixty and two weeks, he will be cut off, but not for himself. Do you remember that? Isaiah fifty three, in other places. Okay, but but Daniel nine is the clearest because it says Messiah, the Prince will be cut off do you see so there should even though it's not the major theme of messiah in the old testament the major theme is is kingdom and glory and him coming down to rout israel's enemies and take over the world but it's there as an important theme and they should have known that okay And we do know that, so there's no excuse for us. So chapter 2. Came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Of course, this is where, this is a good example of um, parameters of meaning. World. Um, What is meant there? Is it the whole globe? Well, you could come away with that meaning, couldn't you? I mean, that would be, you could be excused for thinking, okay, and that would be okay. You'd be within the parameters, but you would have to be corrected, yes? That's a good example of the way you can take something of the Bible, and, but take it wrong. The NASB says inhabited earth. Yes. Well, that's because I think the word is gay hello, well come in, <laughs> take a seat, Loop 2, but we, it means the Mediterranean world, it means the Roman world, particularly the, the Roman East, which by the way was the major part, the most important part of the Roman Empire as far as Rome was concerned, that's where it's all, all of its wealth came from, but um The decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. That's how the censuses were conducted back in those days. We have plenty of evidence for that. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child, so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. so now the text is telling us, and now we all know this stuff, but the text is telling us that Joseph, who is Davidic from a Davidic line okay and and Mary's from also a Davidic line that we'll find out that they are moving from the north, and they're actually coming down now to this very city of David. And that's where this important ruler is going to be born. We can see the hand of, of God all over this. The expectation is building. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. A very lowly birth. In fact, what's what's truly astonishing about this uh, is, is how anonymous the birth of this individual is and there 's these these uh, announcements that they are like uh, why doesn 't the angel just appear in front of the temple and just proclaim it you know a few trumpets out there and 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 you know let 's get everybody excited about this instead of just simply appearing to Zacharias and then striking him dumb so he can 't say anything about it uh, you know why do this? Well to see God has his own purposes. And he's not into fanfare and promotion. Okay, that's something our modern churches need to learn. God's not into that stuff. Um, so, um, so what we find here is that he is born in anonymity. There are people in the inns and the, and uh, people all around Bethlehem. Who had no idea that the most important person in history is being born in their midst they 're just going on their merry way. Now there were in the same country they were not in the inns, they were out in the hills, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds are not were not esteemed in the ancient world, okay, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, now, you don't read about that with Zacharias, or with Mary, but bam, here we are, I mean, it's pitch black, we live in, in the countryside here, and we can go out into the lanes, and we can see the stars and the Milky Way and everything. And some nights it's really amazing what you can see. But we have lights all around. and We have the lights of Ukiah that we can see, or at least they, you know, they have some distortion to what we see. But back here, no electric lights at all. Um, just pure blackness. And. One minute, you know, all they're hearing, are uh, bah, you know, and next, it's just, whew, you know, the curtain is, is raised and there is this, this just incredible heavenly sight of these probably thousands of angels. And the angel of the Lord standing in front of them with the glory of God, driving out that darkness... And they were greatly afraid, which is not surprising. And the angel said to them, as angels do, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings. Every car that goes by this evening has got something wrong with its uh, engine or its exhaust pipe or whatever. I think that's by design. Yes. All right. I'm just saying, I'm just thinking that, that uh, maybe there's a bunch of demons driving around, you know, just because I don't want, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings, that's, gos- that's gospel, young Gellion, of great joy, great joy, great joy. Yeah, we've been told that. I mean, that's everybody says that. You know, Merry Christmas, great joy and all that. But, when we mean when we uh, hear that, we mean yeah, you're supposed to be happy at Christmas because it's a happy thing, and there's lots of lights out, and there's Christmas trees out, and presents, and think nice things to eat, and it's a joyful and let's all be nice to everybody <laughs> kind of thing. But that's not what the angel meant. He's talking about the joy of heaven coming to earth. That's a supernatural joy. That's something the earth doesn't possess. Great joy, which shall be to... Look at this. All people. That's the nations. That's the third part of the Abrahamic covenant. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So... Understand that we're in covenantal territory here. But look what he says next. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And gets it all in there. Okay? He's the Savior that's been spoken about in the Old Testament again and again and again. You know, the one that makes the new covenant and so on. He is... Uh, of in the city of David, promoting that the Davidic aspect of things uh, he is Messiah and he is also the Lord. I mean this is big stuff here this is several of these major prophecies that are coming together here in this statement from the Angel, now we understand a little bit of why the angel showed up and, you know, did what he did, announced things in this incredible fashion. What we perhaps are having problems with is who he's talking to. Why did he decide decide to show up on a hillside and talk to a bunch of shepherds? We can close that door if you want. Of course he's in now, but I mean... (laughs) But, um, well, there's no insignificant people to God, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, there's no little people uh, to God. And God is concerned much more, much more than we are. He is concerned with all people, not just whatever rank they may be. So here you have New Covenant language. In the midst of messianic language, and this will be the sign to you: you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was an angel uh, with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace." There's that Old Testament word, peace, goodwill toward men. Um. This is not merely the birth of a prophet. This is not the birth of anyone that we have met in the Old Testament. I mean, this is extraordinary. John the Baptist doesn't get this treatment. Uh, Moses doesn't get this treatment. David doesn't get this treatment. Nobody. Solomon doesn't get the treatment. Nobody gets the treatment like this. This... Is the connection this is the person this is the person that we have expected all the way from Genesis 3.15 the skull crushing seed of the woman this is him this is why there's such a fanfare here but it's so odd because it's to the wrong people. It's like, no, Gabriel, not, not to the shepherds. I told you to go to the, to the castle, you know, or to the, the center of Jerusalem. Now that's wasted, you know, but absolutely not, you see. It was spectacular, but that show was put on just for a few very insignificant people. Um, That teaches us, doesn't it, that we tend to think that God, if he wants to be effective, will use these methods and these techniques to reach the most people and to do the best thing that he can and so on. And we know how to do it. And these techniques can work. I'm I'm going to be careful not not to go preaching here, but these techniques can work. It doesn't mean God's in them. In fact, God very often He uses the you know the day of small things. As so I'm preaching through the Book of Revelation, or teaching—sorry, I'm teaching through the Book of Revelation <laughs> on Wednesday nights, and uh, we've gone through the seven churches in the Book of Revelation, and uh, the last two churches are very interesting. You have the church in Philadelphia, which has little strength. And has kept his word and not de- denied his name, and you have the church in Laodicea, which uh, says of itself that it's rich and doesn't need anything, and doesn't know that it's poor and rich and, uh, and miserable and wretched and blind. Okay, one of them is thinks it's really got it together, but Jesus is actually outside the church knocking on the door, isn't he? Verse twenty he's not even in the church he's not even in the fellowship the other one he is in a fellowship but they're weak but there's a door opened but that door they don't they don't sense revival around the corner in fact there isn't any intimation as there any kind of revival or change that happens it's just that something incredible is happening but it can only be seen from the heavenly side that's how god is we have to be Philadelphians, not Laodiceans. Laodiceans are all about looking at themselves and looking at their own achievements and using technique to get there. Philadelphians are all about what really matters, keeping the word of God and not denying Jesus' name. Okay? One of them may mean that you are small and you are weak, of little strength. You may have to forego success in order to do God's will. Sometimes not. But often actually you do. And I said I wouldn't be preaching, but I do. So, <laughs> um, so here I hope you can see you have Davidic Covenant, you have Abrahamic Covenant, you have New Covenant, and they're forged together and they are dealing they are um, all together in that one expectation then you have the presentation in the temple and um, behold verse 25 there was a man in jerusalem whose name was simeon and this man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of israel that's not explained why isn't it explained because we should know we've been reading in the old testament what that means the consolation of israel is that israel is going to Uh, finally be blessed by God the kingdom that's been promised is going to come in there's going to be peace and safety in Israel and the enemy's yoke is going to be thrown off in particular the idea is in a person a person's going to do this And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, Messiah. All right, well, he was getting on. He was getting old. We don't know when the Holy Spirit had revealed this to him, but I bet it wasn't five minutes before Jesus showed up. I bet it was years and years before. And he was growing older and he was growing older and he was waiting and the expectation was there and maybe at certain times he was wondering, did he hear right? Should he reinterpret this? You know, is God going to actually come through here? I'm getting older here, nothing's happening. Is this the one? No, that's not the one. You don't enter into these texts unless you, you... read those things into the lives of these people. Okay? Yes, they're paragons of faith. Yes, they're godly men. And yes, they're, they're waiting for these things. But they're just like you and I. So last week I was preaching on uh, this last Sunday, yesterday. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I was preaching on Obadiah. Obadiah, you know, who Elijah comes to and remember that, uh, we've not met him before, but, but uh, Ahab is sent one way, or he goes one way, and Obadiah goes another way, and Elijah is told to go another way. We have three people going three different ways, and God is, a, is designing the whole thing. And Obadiah meets up with Elijah. Okay, Obadiah is a godly man who fears God. He's obviously a man of great faith and great courage. You know, can you do that? He's in a court of Jezebel. He's seen these, uh, what she's done to the prophets of God and then he's taken a hundred of them and he's hidden them. That takes guts. Okay, this man is a, he's a great saint. And comes across with Elijah and what does he say? He's, he's afraid for his life because Elijah says go and tell Ahab that I'm here, Elijah's here and and although this is a man of who fears God greatly and he's a man of faith at the same time he's also a man just like us and he says well what happens if I go to Ahab and you disappear again for another 3 years because we've been trying to find you for 3 years and we You know, all of a sudden, here you are. What happens if the Spirit of God whisks you off somewhere? Then I'm a dead man. That's not a lot of faith in that, is there? He's fearing for his life. What happened to the fear of God that the previous verse had been speaking about? Still there. What happened to the faith? It was still there. But he's human. And his faith fails. And his fear, you know, fails. Like Peter like us, and I'm saying, unless you, you uh, understand the human condition, don't think that, that Simeon was just blithely, peacefully waiting in this kind of trance of peace for years and years for Christ to come along. No, all of these doubts and fears would have come into his heart. And it had been revealed, oh, I've done that. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, the Spirit of God, who had told him years before that he wouldn't die before seeing the Lord's Christ arranged the time that he would come to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, that's what they thought they were doing, he took him up in his arms And blessed God and said, "Now, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word. According to your word. You see, it always comes down to that. God means what he says. We just have to sometimes wait an awful long time. And the temptation is to try and fill in the blank and we shouldn't do that we've got to be patient you've got to be patient and it was done according to God's word no spiritualization going on no typological thing going on here he saw the Lord's Christ just as the spirit had told him For my eyes have seen your salvation. He understands the significance of this baby, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. Okay, there again, the third part of the Abrahamic covenant. The nations is there. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Yes, that's what the prophets have spoken about. And the glory of your people Israel. It's not... Uh, Either or, it's both and. So the expectation for Israel is is there. But then he also understands, because he reads the Old Testament, he also understands that through Israel the nations will be blessed. Keep that in mind as we go through the New Testament. Okay, when we start getting into the church and it's church, 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 And it's one theme all the time, seemingly. Keep that in mind, please, that Israel's Israel and the nations, whether they're dealing with the church or whether they're dealing with the the kingdom after the church, that's the nations, okay? It will help you to interpret um, both testaments. Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother behold this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel because you see not all Israel is Israel as Paul will go on to say just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you're not in for a fall doesn't mean you're going to be saved automatically just because you're not in well with the high priest doesn't mean you're not in for a rise as far as God is concerned. And for a sign that will be spoken against, oh, there's a hint that things are going to go a little bit awry. Maybe the kingdom am not a coming in the the way at first that Zacharias was expecting. Do you see that? There's an understanding here of, of some problems could be ahead. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul hall also, so that many hearts will may be revealed. And then you have Anna, she's a prophetess. And she's waiting as well. Verse thirty eight Coming in that instant she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Old Testament the Old Testament has lots to say about the redemption in Jerusalem. Isaiah talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. Ezekiel definitely talks about it a great deal. There's another one. It's probably the same guy going back with the forms. So when they had performed all these things according to the law of the Lord they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Back to obscurity. Little time in Bethlehem. Angels, you know, signs. All this great stuff going on. And then back to obscurity. Back north. And the child grew and became strong and spirit-filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. or we'll stopped stop there. Um, Luke. So far has not broken step at all with the Old Testament expectation, has he? But, you know, as we go on, we're going to be looking for when Paul breaks step with that expectation. It's Paul, he's the problem. You know, Paul's going to somehow mess this picture up, isn't he? Or is he? He's not, I'm telling you, he's not. But you've got to get this stuff, read it in its context and go slowly through it. And when you get into Paul, you'll start to realize that there's a reason that Paul is not surprised by the church. And there's a reason that he uses the Old Testament in the way that he does. Because he understands, like few people seem to do, if I can that sounds completely arrogant, uh, Genesis chapter twelve verse three, and in through you all the nations or all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, and he quotes that and he quotes the parts of the Abrahamic covenant that relate to that, and he avoids the parts that don't, so he's got his biblical glasses on straight. Some people don't, okay? And that's where the confusion comes. Right, any questions or observations before we close? We have to kind of push it here because uh, of the constraints of this course. We have to kind of, I have to tie you out. Um, yes? We're talking about Israel, and then um, Israel's divided. When the kingdom split. Mm-hmm. And they went into captivity. And now suddenly Israel is just all the Jews. Mm-hmm. So how does that... So if you're talking about Israel, then that's gotta include some other people besides just the Jews. No. No. Uh, although I think you're asking two questions there. So let me take the first question, or at least what I think you're asking the first question is, since uh, the ten tribes went out off into Assyrian to captivity around about 722 B.C. Uh, so there was just the southern kingdom left, which was mainly Judah and Benjamin. And they went out off into captivity in 586 B.C. What about that? Well, you've got to understand that, that uh, the people in the north weren't dumb. And when the Assyrians were outside the doors, many of them th- thought it would be a very good idea to go south. And many of them did. Not all of them. Not all of them, because of but but even you know like like um, the refugees nowadays they will go sometimes to a hostile territory rather than stay in their own land hmm. and kind of just risk it there to get away from what they think is certain death or persecution. So you're saying the 10 tribes went. A lot of them went M- back. Many, to well, at least representatives of the ten tribes went down into uh the southern kingdom, yes. And so that's why you read in um, we we went into this but uh look at Ezekiel thirty seven you'll see that when he brings the two rods together yes, in his hand. Okay, that shows you that even in cap in the Babylonian captivity, circa um, probably then, I don't know, five ninety, something like that. Um, at, at that point, there were representatives of all 12 tribes. Now, as far as your other one is concerned is, were there Gentiles that were, became Jews, proselytes and so on, and are they part of Israel? Um, yeah, they were proselytized and they were absorbed into the clans of Israel at, over time, um, but that, not in any significant number to affect uh, the Jewishness of, of Israel. So yeah, we're still talking about Israel very much here. We're talking about Jewishness. Okay, any other question? All right. is it, is it much like 12 12 sessions? We'll probably try and wrap it up in ten. Uh which is why I'm gonna drive you you know, be like Jehu driving furiously um, to try and get through this stuff, and I hope that you will just be patient with me and and, and realize that that there is a payoff in that you um, you 'll have a, one or two spare weeks, but just to get through this material uh, there 's probably one or two mondays i won 't be able to make it here so uh, that 's why ten weeks I think we can get this done, but it does mean that we 've got to get. Uh, foot to the floor and, and really get on with this so your homework then is keep reading through luke's gospel um, try to mark up anything that's there that smacks of a covenantal flavor okay if you think oh davidic covenant or this just mark it up okay and just keep reading through Luke's Gospel. If you want to read through the other Gospels as well, that's great. Remember that Mark, he's written, writing for a Gentile audience. And he starts off, well, he calls him the Son of God straight away. And then doesn't call him the Son of God until the end of the Gospel. But uh, Mark is, is dealing with revealing Jesus' true identity over time. Okay, through the circumstances of life. So so Mark doesn't have an awful lot to say about the messianic kingdom, although chapter 13 certainly is important there. Uh, John, again, is more concerned with the message of salvation and the new covenant and showing Jesus' true identity than he is with the tying it to the uh, Old Testament, although he does do it in John 2 and several other places. Uh, so we're really dealing here with, to, to get the continuity from the Old Testament, Matthew and Luke do that for us. Luke does it surprisingly, probably more than Matthew does. And so that's why we're in Luke, because Luke really does make these covenantal connections strongly for us. So that, that's your homework. And uh, we'll see you next week, and we'll keep uh, going through this material.